morning. Morning. Let's pray. Father God, we honor you for your word. We honor you for the way that you speak to us through this book, but also the way that you speak to us every day of our lives. We just need to listen. We just need to look. We just need to open up our hearts and ears. And I ask that you will help us in all those things today, that you will give us ears to hear, Lord, that you'll anoint my lips as I speak, that the words that are sown in our heart today will be words of truth. Amen. So um, often when I'm preaching, I put a whole load of these tabs in my Bible so I can find my scriptures quite easily um, because I'm competitive and I need to get there before you guys. Um, and there are quite a lot, so um, be warned. I'll be darting around a fair bit today. I'm not really competitive. Just made that up. Right, we are in Genesis still. Uh, we've been in a series, Understanding what this book means to us, this story of God, this story of origins, story of creation. And we've got as far as Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. So Genesis 3, 14 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So today we come to the point in the story where the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, they've disobeyed God at the encouragement of the serpent and God's asked the humans to give an account for their actions, to explain what they've done. And... Um, Having listened to Adam and Eve's attempt to pass the blame around, God now responds. And right at the start of this very brief ex extract, we see again the covenant name of God, which, for the sake of argument, we're pronouncing Yahweh. And Lord God, the phrase there, is from the Hebrew Yahweh Elohim. And so we know from past sermons that this is who we're dealing with and who it is that's speaking. You may remember that the word Yahweh tells us a lot about God. It, we find out from this word that God is self-existent, that he's the creator of everything, uh, that he's unchanging in character and person, and that he's eternal. And then from the other word, Elohim, we know that this is the Trinitarian God, the many, the plural, the one God in three persons. And we know from the other connotations of this word that God is royal, majestic, he's strong, and he's the ruler of everything. And it's important, I'm, I know I'm laboring this point, but it's important to know who it is that's speaking. It's important to know something about this person because it gives context to what he's saying. And just to explain what I mean there, just imagine for a second that I said, I'm fed up of all the stabbings in this country. From now on, all knives are banned in England. From today, all knives are banned. People may only use spoons and forks and have to push those teeny tiny olive skewers to eat and prepare food. I, Rob Pomeroy, commander of the whole British Empire, including the kingdom of the magic potato people, have spoken. Now, what would be the effect of me saying that? Nothing. It would, it would have no effect. Uh, people might think Rob's finally had that psychotic break we've all been expecting. But they wouldn't think... 
Oh, yes, I'll take note of this and immediately remove all knives from my cutlery drawer. But if, on the other hand, the government said this, that all knives were banned, how different would the effect be then? We might grumble. In fact, we definitely grumble, because grumbling is officially the UK's second most popular national pa pastime after discussing our fascinating weather. But we'd also take note. And most of us would do as we, we'd been told. And the difference comes down to context, to rights, to authority, to responsibility. So our government has the right to pass laws, and on the whole it does this, not because we have an angry government that retaliates when stabbings occur. No, it legislates for the protection and welfare of the majority. So when God begins to speak here in this passage, when he starts to pass this curse, to use powerful words that instantaneously have far-reaching implications. They change the whole course of human history from this point on. When, when God speaks, he does this for a number of reasons. At first, it's important to understand that God is the judge of all. He has the right and the duty to pass judgment. So we won't turn there, but briefly, James 4, 12, James chapter 4, verse 12, the first part of that verse, uh, he says, and he's speaking about God, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So God is the ultimate judge of all mankind because God himself is the definition of right, of goodness. So all moral decisions, all ethical, ethical judgments have to be made by reference to him. And when we're trying to understand the difference between wrong and right, if we don't do that by reference to God, we just come hopelessly unstuck. You might remember that Emma in her sermon a few weeks ago, she was talking about good and evil. And as Emma explained then, what is goodness? We find out what goodness is by looking at God. So what is wickedness? Wickedness is everything that God is not. So after the sin of Adam and Eve and after the deceitfulness of the serpent, God passes judgment because that's the right thing to do and it's the legitimate thing for him to do as judge. And the second reason that God is saying these things, that he speaks the way he does, is that although God is the only judge, he isn't only a judge. He's also a father. In fact, he's the most perfect father. Let's look at Luke 11. Luke 11. Luke 11 and verses 11 to 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? Just a side note here, if you've not received the Holy Spirit, all you have to do is ask him. Accept his rule and ask for his gift. Now, if you don't know what it means to receive the Holy Spirit, let's talk after this sermon. I promise you it will be totally worth your while. Okay, so God's a perfect father, and his motivation towards his children, towards us, is loving. And it's not the kind of love 
that allows his children to do whatever they want. No, it's the kind of love that always wants the best for his children. As many of us know, we won't turn there. In Romans 8.28, the Apostle Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Or to put it another way, in all things, God is working for our good. But remember, this is good by his definition, not by ours. So my definition of good might be that God should give me everything I want, a big house, a fast car, lots of money. But God's definition of good as a perfect father involves ensuring that I don't become a spoiled, selfish child. So loving person, loving, loving perfect parents will limit their gifts and discipline their children. I want to be careful here because discipline is quite an emotive word, isn't it? So let me be, just really be clear about what I mean. Discipline is the process through which God shapes our entire person and character to steer us away from wickedness and towards righteousness in all that we think, that we speak, and do. I'll say that again. Discipline is the process through which God shapes our entire person and character to steer us away from wickedness and towards righteousness in all we think, speak, and do. Let me take you to a passage um, that I think is one of the most wonderful and encouraging things I've ever read about discipline. This is Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 and verses 5 to 13. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Can I get an amen? <laughs> all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. It's amazing, isn't it? Discipline, as this passage says, we view it as a painful process. And, and so it's painful for the, the, the parents too, isn't it? Not just the children. Sometimes it's so painful that the parents choose not to discipline their children. And those children grow up to be unruly and lawless and most parents, if they see that, if they realize their fault, they regret the lack of discipline, their overindulgence of their children. So discipline's good, and it's necessary. And God says, don't be downcast. 
Don't feel victimized or poorly treated. Lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees. See the purpose. See the loving heart behind the discipline. And realize it's actually a compliment. If God didn't care for you, if he didn't love you as a child, he wouldn't bother disciplining you. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. What's that about? The man of lawlessness is someone who's not a son, not a child of God. That individual with rebellious heart rejects the rule of God, rejects the sacrifice of Christ, and that person is going to be punished, but not disciplined. He's a son of destruction, not a son of correction. He will be ended, not encouraged and helped. So God's the perfect judge and the perfect father. In Genesis 3, 14 to 15, our passage today, we see the start of the process where on the one hand, God punishes the serpent, but on the other hand, he begins to bring discipline to his children, to mankind, to his son Adam and his daughter Eve and to their descendants. Big difference between punishment and discipline. And why does he do this? Is it because he's angry? Well, you know the Bible does speak of God's anger at unrighteousness, so yes, there's probably anger there, but there's also love. So the end game here is not to destroy Adam and Eve, it's to point them in a better direction. So we we commonly refer to this passage and to the verses that follow it immediately from Genesis 3.14 to verse 19. We call it the curse. And we'll see the rest of the curse in next week's sermon. But the point that I want to make here, the point that I believe the Holy Spirit's making, is that this isn't simply a curse. This isn't about God bringing ruin and difficulty to humankind. The aspects of the curse that affect us, that afflict us, are for our discipline, for our growth. This is ultimately to bring us to the point of understanding how in our wretched and broken state we need Jesus. We can't make it on our own. We can't ever be good enough just through our own effort. We can't be good enough to win God's approval. I mean, Adam and Eve, as we've said before, I think Dave Brown pulled this one out, they had just one rule they had to keep. One rule. And they couldn't even do that. And we've got, I don't know, thousands, millions of rules. So let's not deceive ourselves. We have no chance of being good. No chance of staying on the straight and narrow at all times and in all circumstances. Some people say to themselves, I'm a good person, I do all right. I pay my taxes, I go to church, I help little old ladies or men across the road. I'm good, all in all. I'm okay. I say to that person, you're wrong. You're not good. Not by God's standards. You can never be that good. You've got no chance. Not by your own efforts. You can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps, if you're down in the gutter, bootstraps and all. And that person says to me, well, Rob, this is an impossible standard. It's ridiculous. 
No one can be that good. And I say, yes! At last you're getting it. You see, God is the standard of good. He's absolutely good. And anything less than God, anything that doesn't measure up to him, I'm sorry, the news is, it's not good. Are you as good as God? No? Then you're not good. End of story. You want a reference for that, right? Okay, here's one. Mark 10.18, Jesus is talking to a rich guy who's come up to Jesus and he's about to say to Jesus the same kind of thing. I keep all the commandments, I'm a good person. And he opens by calling Jesus, big mistake, by calling Jesus, good teacher. And Jesus replies, this is Mark 10.18, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Boom, got you. And so God, the only one who's good enough brings discipline to guide us, to shape us, to correct us, to align us with his standard of goodness by putting us on the only path that leads to goodness. So God as judge and father, he responds to the first sin of his children by creating the best possible environment in which his children can return to him. This is the environment we're living in right now. Do you hear me? It's the best possible environment in which God's children can return to him. So you look around the world and say, what's going on? There's so much chaos, so much hate, so much evil. You're right. This is what it takes for us to be driven back to God. If you're taking notes, write that down, highlight it, underline it. This is what it takes for us to be driven back to God because we're so stubborn, to return to our true Father. The single most important purpose in my life, in your life, is to say yes to God. Yes to his son Jesus and to return to him. It's that simple. So God punishes the serpent, the devil, and he disciplines Adam and Eve. He disciplines us. Let's read our passage again. Genesis 3, 14 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So let's look at this thing that's going on with a the snake then. We've already talked before about this snake, a talking snake in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve in their innocence, in their unspoiled state, they don't find it strange that the snake talks. And they're more than willing to listen. And remember that at this point, they didn't know what evil was. They only knew that they were to obey their father, God. So a talking snake's no problem for them. And we have plenty of scriptural evidence to support the idea that this literally happened. And you can recap this by listening to Dave Brown's sermon from the 3rd of June, entitled, Enter the Snake. It's a real snake. <sighs> In Genesis verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we were told that the serpent was more crafty than any other animal. And the Hebrew word that's used there is arum. I'm almost certain that's how you pronounce it. And it means cunning and clever. It's not necessarily a bad thing in the way we normally understand the word crafty these days. The Hebrew word arum is crafty. 
Now in verse 14, where we are today, God says that the snake is more cursed than any other creature. And the word used here for more cursed is the Hebrew word arur. It's only one consonant difference. Arum meaning crafty and arur meaning cursed. I suppose at this point you're waiting for a deep theological principle to jot down. And I've got really bad news for you. I don't have one. It's just interesting, isn't it? There's this poetic, uh, playful use of the words, setting up two very similar words to show what the serpent was and what it's now to become. The snake goes from being crafty to being cursed, from a rur to a rum. It's the truth, and it's also a pun. There's wonderful humor in the Bible. Okay, so in verse 14, God's talking to this serpent. Or is he? And that's the tricky question, isn't it? If you've been a Christian a while, you'll probably know that most of us think that this serpent was in some way not just a snake, it was also the devil or Satan. And why do we think this? Because if you look back over all we've covered so far from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to today's verses in Genesis chapter 3, you won't find the devil's name mentioned anywhere. So where did this idea come from that the serpent was also Satan? Well, it's one of those things, like the doctrine of the Trinity that God is three persons in one. We have to pull it together from several scriptures to reach an understanding of what's going on. So let's start with um, the scripture that's probably the easiest to understand on this point. It's in Revelation chapter 12. There's a couple of these in Revelation. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9. Now war arose in heaven... Michael and all his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to his earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So I think quite helpfully here, the John the Apostle and the prophet, he's calling Satan that ancient serpent, which is it's a fairly good indicator, isn't it, that the serpent in the Garden of Eden, the most ancient serpent that we know about, is also the devil. But, you know, maybe John was just using a metaphor, because a lot of revelation is metaphorical, isn't it? So we need a bit more than that. John goes on to call the devil the deceiver of the whole world. So maybe we're getting somewhere now. The devil definitely threw Adam and Eve, the father and mother of the whole world, the devil definitely deceived us all. And I think it's pretty relevant in um, John 8, 44, Jesus describes the devil as the father of lies. And that obviously would include the first lie ever told back in Genesis. Uh, John 8.44, here Jesus is talking to some Jews who don't yet believe in him. John 8.44, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil. That must have been hard to take. <laughs> and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Of course, the devil was a murderer from the beginning because the effect, as we know, of his actions in the Garden of Eden was to separate Adam and Eve from the tree of life. So they would eventually go on to die. And he fathered the biggest, the most whopping, most destructive lie in the history of mankind. 
Now let's look at Romans 16. Uh, sorry, I know we're darting around a bit. Romans 16 and verse 20, the first part of that verse. Romans 16:20. And here Paul says to the believing Christians, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He'll soon crush Satan under your feet. What did God say to the serpent in Genesis 3.15? He, that is the seed, the offspring of Adam and Eve, shall bruise your head. So we're bruising the head of the serpent. He's to be crushed under our feet. Let's just recap. We've got Revelation calling the devil a serpent and a deceiver. We've got Jesus calling the devil a murderer and the father of lies. And we've got Paul telling the Christians that Satan will be crushed under our feet, just like the curse that God pronounced over the serpent. There are other passages we can consider too, but I think these are the clearest. So it really does look like we're right in thinking that the serpent in the Garden of Eden was the devil or was possessed, inhabited, or controlled by the devil. Now, I'd like to add one more passage into the mix, and it's from the book of Ezekiel. And it could seem a bit obscure because it doesn't specifically name Satan. And in fact, it refers to someone called the King of Tyre, whoever that was. But I think when you read it in the context of all the other passages we've just looked at, you'll see how clearly it refers to Satan and the serpent. And it may be one of these multiple fulfillment prophecies, which did also refer to another specific person at a particular point in history. But I think you'll agree with me as we read it, it definitely applies to the serpent, the devil, whatever else is in mind. So Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 16... Ezekiel 28, 11 to 16. And if you know your Bible well, you probably pick up on all sorts of other allusions to other scriptures as well. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub, angel. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. And it goes on. You see what I mean? You were in Eden. You were an anointed guardian cherub. So Revelation tells us that in the end, the devil and all the angels who fell with him from heaven will be cast into the lake of fire, utterly destroyed which is what this passage in Ezekiel goes on to say. So there can be no doubt that in this curse, in Genesis 3, 14 to 15, God is talking to the devil. Okay, that's good as far as it goes. But God also says to the snake, on your belly you shall go. What does that mean? Do we know of any snakes that don't go on their belly? Dorothy, you're our expert. Any snakes with legs? No? So I think the most likely explanation 
is that the, the snake was originally some kind of lizard-like creature, and it did have legs. Uh, some species of snake eventually go on to become an apex predator, don't they? As it is, without legs. So perhaps removing the legs from this creature leveled the playing field a bit. We know that creation changed significantly when humans sinned, and we'll hear more about that, no doubt, in a later sermon in this series. So maybe as part of this fall, God knew that a snake with legs would be unacceptably dangerous. I mean, maybe before this, the snake had like a hundred legs and could outrun any other creature on this planet. I'm really, really sorry if you have a phobia of snakes, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. Let me just be absolutely clear and admit that this is a wild speculation on my part. So please don't go writing that into a theology dissertation or anything. Unless, of course, you're writing it to say, I heard this really crazy theory about snakes the other day from this gray-haired nutter. Don't know what he was talking about. So why else might God pronounce a curse over the snake? I mean, it's not the snake's fault. It was taken over and used by Satan, is it? Perhaps a better explanation than my apex predator theory comes when we look elsewhere in Scripture. By the way, one of the most important principles of biblical interpretation, one of the things that saves us from going off on wild fantasies about 100-legged snakes, is the principle of using Scripture to interpret, to understand Scripture, right? We know that the Bible is internally consistent. If God is truth, the Word of God, the Bible, isn't going to contradict itself. And I, I know many people like to say, the Bible is full of contradictions, but just let me reassure you, these so-called contradictions, they never amount to anything other than poor understanding of Scripture, poor interpretation. So... This is an old book, collection of books, written hundreds and in some cases thousands of years ago. We can't assume that the way people talked back then, the way they wrote, the way they thought, is exactly the same way that we think or write. And this is a problem of biblical interpretation, which is sometimes called hermeneutics. It's a fancy word that means interpretation. We use scripture to interpret scripture. And from what I know of scripture, I know that sometimes God performs acts that are metaphorical or symbolic. He tells a story through the things he does. Jonah in the belly of the whale. Now this forces us to work hard to understand something. And if you've ever worked hard to understand something, you'll know that you understand it better through hard work than if someone just gives you the answer. So let's look at another example of this. It's uh, Jesus and the fig tree. This story appears in two of the Gospels. It's in Matthew 21 and Mark 11. The, the passages read slightly differently because I think the Gospel writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were making two slightly different points. So you can study them both at your leisure if you like. But for, for now, let's look at the Mark 11 passage. Mark 11. in here somewhere. Right, Mark 11, and we're going to read verses 12 to 14, and then skip to verses 20 to 25. Mark 11, 12 to 14 says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that's Jesus, was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. 
And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then skipping to verse 20. And they passed by in the morning. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Jesus remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Because they didn't believe it would happen, did they? Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, I don't want there to be any misunderstandings here. When you look at this verse, it's quite easy to misunderstand it. So let me say up front that I don't believe that God wants us literally to start throwing mountains into the sea. So in case the thought had occurred to you, stop. And I don't believe the fact that there's no recorded incident of anyone having done that means that nobody had enough faith, or the right kind of faith, because I am absolutely certain that people have tried this one out. Just remember, God made the earth. He saw it, and he said that it was good. And he put the mountains where he wanted them. And he probably doesn't want us mucking up his handiwork on that kind of scale, thank you very much. I mean, we're already wreaking enough havoc on this planet as it is, isn't it? Imagine how much worse it would be if all the mountains were in the sea and the sea was where the mountains were and whatnot. It would all be very messy. Faith is much more about understanding God's will and praying in accordance with that will. Faith is a gift of God. It comes from God. It's not a magic wand that we can wave so that we can make anything happen according to our own wills. But what about this? So Jesus cursed the fig tree, uh, apparently because it didn't have any figs on it. But it wasn't the season for figs. It wasn't the season for figs. So what's going on? We've got a fig tree being withered because of something it didn't do wrong. And we've got snakes losing their legs because of something they didn't do wrong. It was the devil. So as I said, God speaks in metaphors sometimes, so that we have to work at the meaning to understand him well. And the fig tree incident, I hope, proves that this is one of the ways he operates. Do you see the point I'm making here? Hope so. So what was the fig tree about? I mean, honestly, I don't know for sure personally, but one possibility is that the fig tree symbolically represented Israel, and this isn't my own idea, I'm not that clever. A few different commentators that I've read point out how a fig tree is often used in the Bible and in Jewish literature to represent Israel, the Jewish nation. So in withering the fig tree that's not bearing fruit, Jesus sends a very stern warning to any Jews who are watching or reading. They should be bearing fruit born out of obedience to God. They're not being obedient, they're not in season, so they won't be likely to bear fruit. So they're going to be disciplined. 
Does that make sense? A bit? And back to the snake. The snake represents evil now, represents the devil and his work. And in removing the snake's legs, God makes the snake less agile, less powerful. And in the rest of the curse here, we see how God's going to make the devil less powerful. Verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And now we come to the crux of it. I'm using the word crux deliberately because it comes from the Latin word for cross. The crux of this matter is the enmity, the battle between the devil and the offspring of the woman. The battle that's won at the cross. But wait a second, who's the offspring that's mentioned here? Well, partly, it's us. Romans 16, as we saw earlier, Paul tells the Christians that Satan will be crushed under their feet, under our feet. But we can't possibly be so arrogant as to think it's in our own power we'll do this. Can we? The writer of Genesis is prophetically referring to the greatest offspring of Eve. Jesus Christ who in his human nature is directly descended from Eve, as we all are. Jesus is the one who crushes the devil under his feet. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter is preaching and he says this, Acts 2. We're nearly there. Acts 2, verses 32 to 36. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all that house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is it. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the curse in these verses in Genesis 3. The curse wasn't simply, listen, the curse wasn't simply for the punishment of the devil and for our discipline. It was also for the glorification of of Jesus. Punishment, discipline, glorification. At that moment, thousands of years ago, at the time of the fall, God already knew exactly how he was going to put everything back together again. He knew exactly how the devil would be defeated. We should take a lot of comfort from this from the incredible power and foresight of God. The devil can't beat him. The devil can't beat us. He's already lost. And Jesus has already won. One last point, because I think it's so very encouraging. You see in the curse how the devil will bruise Christ's heel. So yeah, that might be annoying, having your heel injured, bitten. It might be a pain. It might interfere with your walking or your pogoing or whatever you like to do. 
But notice what Christ will do to the devil. He will bruise his head. He will crush his head. We can probably survive with an injured heel, or if we lose a heel altogether. But ain't nobody coming back from a crushed head. That devil is history. He's beaten. He's out of there. If he comes knocking at your door, trying to make you feel bad about your history, as the saying goes, you tell him about his future. Resist him in the name of Jesus. Confess your sins to God, and Satan has no chance with you. He's feeble. He's got no legs. He's out for the count. If you find your life difficult, but you've confessed your sins and resisted the devil, and yet it's still difficult, then take some comfort from this. The difficulties in your life, therefore your discipline. The easy times in your life, therefore your discipline too. God is shaping us into well adjusted citizens of his kingdom, well-adjusted children, modeled after his perfect child, his perfect son, Jesus. This is the word of God. This is the meaning of the passage today. The devil is punished and beaten. We're disciplined as children, loved and brought back to God, and Jesus is glorified. Praise his name forever. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that's there. If only we take the time to read and understand it. We thank you, Lord, that as a righteous judge, you have punished the devil and his army. We thank you, Lord, that as a loving father, you discipline us. And we thank you, Lord, that as God, as king, and as a proud father, rightly proud, you are glorifying your son. We thank you for this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.